The Cat and Coca Report, episode number 119. Welcome to the Cat and Coca Report, the podcast dedicated to making sense of healthcare. From policy to economics, from evidence-based medicine to ethics, join us as Drs. Michelle Lacard and Anish Coca diagnose and treat the latest epidemic of healthcare absurdities. All right. Well, welcome to the Akad and Coca Report today. We to, we have the pleasure of having Ovik Roy on. Ovik Roy um, uh, is a this is a second appearance on today. Um, Ovik uh, is uh, currently uh, founder and and leads the Free Up Institute, which is a which is a think tank that uh, uh, puts out all sorts of great health health policy related stuff that I, I've always found incredibly practical. And he's on here today to talk about. Um, the free op plan for reopening. Um, so we'll start. We'll start. First of all, thanks for coming on. Sure. I know it's super busy, and because uh, you've been, you put out the plan, and you've been all over the place. I see. Um, what? What? Uh, we'll start with what you. What, what are your thoughts on what you know today related to the pandemic, as opposed to, uh, you know, a month ago? What, what do you know today? What? What don't you know? What do you still want to know? Well, uh, well, that's that, we, we could spend the whole hour talking about uh, you know about that topic. I mean, particularly in the, with the preprint uh, press. I mean, there's lots of interesting stuff coming out every day. Uh, what I would say is, broadly speaking, if we talk really at a at ten thousand foot level, right. I think what we're seeing more is a reinforcement of what we already suspected or could glean from preliminary evidence. I don't think we're seeing anything dramatically shocking that completely changes our perspective of what's going on here. For example, we see more and more uh, accumulation of evidence about uh, the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on uh, the elderly population. We see um, uh, interesting uh, and again, in a sense, confirmatory data about uh, the the, the seroprevalence of anti-SARS-CoV-2 antibodies in the broader population, which indicates that the true fatality rate from infection is much lower than um, than, than maybe the worst case uh, scenarios had predicted. And I, I think the one thing that's probably new today rather than a month ago, the one thing that really is interesting and I think is something worth thinking a lot harder about is that th the trajectory of uh, hospitalizations, fatalities, et cetera, has not been that different regardless of the policy response across the world. So if you look at uh, the countries that have been most aggressive on, in terms of the lockdown versus say a Sweden, which has been relatively light touch on the lockdown, the curves look pretty similar. Um, so that's, I think, been a really interesting uh, aspect to, to this, uh, to, to the evidence of the last several weeks. And I think that really, ties us into the the conversation we're having today about the plan that we've put out at the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. Right. I'm so I'm so glad you said that because it, it is it is so interesting. You know, a, a month ago, you know, there's so much uncertainty about how this is unfolding. You have you have Lombardy that's happening and, and you know it, it looks it looks it looks tremendously bad. You know, then you have New York unfolding in a way that looks tremendously bad. And you don't know, maybe, maybe there's 10, 15 other metros in the United States that are going to progress the same way. So it's certainly understandable to act Kind of in an overwhelming way, um, but you know, luckily for us, you know, it's a it's a big world. Um, the United States is a big country, and things seem to be developing 
both regionally in the United States and as well as uh, across the world in very, very different ways, despite, as you said, uh, the different um, different ways that people are, 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 are going about this. Sweden, which never locked down. Singapore, which has a very sophisticated contact tracing app. But yet now they're having a resurgence. So we'll, we'll get into some of that for, for sure. So what so is this what were you waiting for um, um, before coming up coming up with this the plan for reopening? Well, I wouldn't say that we were so much waiting as it, as as much as there was a moment that we felt there was a need to respond to, which was to say there was a consensus, a really an overwhelming and bipartisan consensus about what tests we were we needed to pass in order to reopen the economy scaling up testing, developing a new treatment for the disease of COVID-19, uh, herd immunity, uh, developing a vaccine or being on track to do so. Unless we, the, the conventional wisdom put out, you know, which was echoed by think tanks, policymakers, public health officials uh, across the aisles was, uh, if we don't do those things, we can't reopen the economy. And while this, that consensus was gelling, at the same time, we were seeing this incredible economic destruction, 22 million people unemployed with more to come, uh, small businesses cratering, trillions of dollars being spent to try to prop up the economy, uh, something on the scale of the Great Depression, far worse than the, the recession of 2008. Uh, so both of those things were happening at the same time. And, and while all that was happening, I and, and my, my co-authors were, were independently at first, uh, in our own cubicles, I suppose you could say, uh, very concerned about that consensus in the sense that there's a lot of reason to be concerned that we won't be able to scale up accurate testing to millions of people in, in a short period of time, that we won't be able to develop an effective treatment against COVID-19 in the short term. Over the long term, I'm, I'm confident that we can, but in the short term, where time is of the essence economically, can we do it? Uh, do antibodies confer immunity? We have no reason to be certain of that at this point, especially when you look at the history of past coronavirus, uh, you know, or our experience with coronavirus more generally. And in terms of vaccines, uh, yes, we got a lot of smart people working on vaccines, but you know, Anish, I don't know if you know what the land speed record is for development of a vaccine for a, a viral a, a viral agent. Five years. Five years for Ebola. SARS-CoV or like, Ebola. Sorry, not SARS-CoV. Yeah, yeah. So, so that five years is the record, yep. right? So we're we're just promising that we're going to get it done in twelve months just because we're trying harder. I don't think so. I think biology sometimes uh, and Mother Nature uh, can can have a say on that. So yeah. uh, there's a lot of reasons to be concerned that we won't meet those tests. And we've been telling the public, oh, don't worry, we've got this all figured out. Once we scale up the testing and develop treatments and vaccines, everything's going to be fine. And we have not prepared the public for the possibility, if not the probability, that we don't succeed at achieving all four of those benchmarks. So what do we do then? And that was what precipitated the development of this plan, because we felt it was necessary to, to try harder to think about how to reopen the economy, even in the teeth of failure, potential failure in some of those areas. That's the thing that's so appealing about the plan when I first saw it uh, come out last, uh, uh, last week, was that it was a very pragmatic plan. It didn't rely on uh, on, on us ha having the ability to test 200 million Americans every day when they uh, got to work. So tell me, so tell me a little bit about what, you know, what, what your plan is and um, if you can go through some of the highlights. Before we do that, Ove, can you clarify? Because I mean, I understand that, you know, when think tanks put out plans, it's a little bit in the ether to, for the conversation, you know, to steam it, you know, but is there a particular audience or 
politicians or policymakers? Is it for the White House primarily or for the governors? Or where, what's your most focused target if, if there's one? Uh, I would say in general, our approach is to, uh, when we put out our stuff, is, is we're, 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 our audience is policymakers at every level. So federal, you know, White House, Congress, state governments, both legislatures and governor's offices, localities, and, uh, you know, other experts and uh, opinion makers, right? So it's, it's that, that we tend, you know, we obviously put this out for the general public as well, but, uh, but it's especially important that we, that we reach the decision makers because particularly in a situation like this, the decision makers, uh, the speed at which the decisions are being made and, and the importance of those decisions is essential to get it out there. So we, we've certainly, you know, of course we've posted it on our website, freopp.org and, uh, and made it available to everyone. I've, we've sent it out, I've sent it out personally to, to lots of uh, policymakers at, at all those different levels of government. So we've done our best to, to put it out there and, and let it uh, and let, let people take a look at it and answer their questions when they have them. And, and, uh, and the response has been very, uh, you know, I expected some response, but I think the response has been uh, much greater than I expected. I think because of kind of what you were describing or what Anish was describing earlier, which is this, this point about uh, not taking for granted the success on these various benchmarks that have been put out there. I think a lot of people hadn't really thought that through uh, because they just sort of accepted, oh yeah, the experts are telling us we're going to get all this done. Great, and I think this really made them think, oh no, well, what if we what if we can't <laughs> succeed on those points? We really have to think seriously about that. Your plan rests on the uh, rests on a couple things. One is that there is such a differential in terms of who is at risk for ha uh, for serious morbidity and mortality. Correct. Yeah. Um, and yes. you know we see this over and over again that folks. Um, that are over 65 with pre-existing conditions, uh, you know, I mean, the numbers are striking, you know, uh, yeah. hun a hundredfold <laughs> difference Even between, more. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, between somebody who's uh, uh, younger without any, any symptoms. So, so uh, that's a significant component of, of why you think, uh, you know, you, uh, your plan uh, will, will work. Can, can, you, can you talk about how you use that uh, to come up with, uh, you know, the, the, your, your kind of your therapy for this? Yeah, if, if someone forces me to, to, to give the elevator pitch on, a, on our 4,000 word plan, the way I try to do it is to say, look, we're pessimistic in certain areas, which is we think there's a, a, a reasonable non-zero chance that we fail at some of these benchmarks that have emerged for reopening the economy. But we're more optimistic about the tools that we have to reopen the economy because of this uh, unusually uh, elderly oriented morbidity and mortality. Of course, morbidity and mortality generally skews towards the elderly, but in, in this particular case, it's much more so. Obviously, we don't completely understand why yet, though plenty of hypotheses have, have been uh, uh, floated, but, but it's there. And, and I think w the way we look at that is it, 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 uh, it, it allows us to reopen both the schools and the workplace uh, to, the, to healthier non-elderly individuals. So what do we know? We know that people over 65, generally speaking, have much higher morbidity and mortality. And we know that people between 40 and 65, if they have other chronic diseases, particularly the cardiometabolic uh, syndrome uh, type diseases, uh, high blood pressure, heart disease, diabetes, et cetera, uh, there, uh, you know, that's where, that's where some of the morbidity, morbidity and mortality is in that uh, sort of middle-aged population. And then uh, under 40, the risks appear to be quite low from a morbidity and mortality standpoint. They're not zero, 
but they're very, very low, low enough that we should, uh, you know, use that as a tool from a policy standpoint. And so wait, how do we think about the policy response? First of all, the first thing we lead with is reopen the schools. Now, again, we, 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 create, we have some asterisks and caveats there about things like, okay, if you're a kid who lives with your grandparents or have other frequent contact with at-risk individuals, that's something to keep in mind. But wherever possible, we should reopen the schools and to as many people as possible and, and of course, enable virtual learning for those who still have to stay at home. But if we can do that, not only does, is it important for those children, but it's important for the parents of those children who otherwise can't work. There are plenty of people, imagine a single mom who's a pharmacist. So right now, pharmacies are open, they're essential businesses. But pharmacies are not, if she can't work because her kids are gonna be home alone, then she, she's lost her job or she's, she's in a position where she can't really uh, be viable economically. So uh, school matters not just for the children, but the, for the parents of those children who otherwise are unable to work or can't work effectively. And the next piece of the puzzle is how you reopen workplaces. And we have a, a two-part uh, uh, kind of suggestion there. The first is let's reopen the workplace for younger people, right? Lower, lower risk people should be able to go back to work. And secondly, uh, let's have uh, the, the workplace, let's incentivize workplaces through tax credits to test their workers. Um, and, and so if we can do that, then uh, then we can actually kind of encourage mass testing, kind of like employer-sponsored health insurance in a sense. We could say, hey, employers, you go test everybody because particularly with the PCR type test, but it's also somewhat true of serology. If you have a, you know, if you have someone organizing the testing function for you as a worker, it's a lot easier than trying to, particularly right now, acquire a home-based test to do it yourself. So it would be... So those are the two core uh, planks of the plan, reopen the schools, reopen the workplace, and there's a lot of other stuff in there too. But those are, those would be the things I'd highlight. What, and what and so again, the core features the kind of thing that the the assumptions are that we can we can lean into the fact that folks that are older, folks that have comorbidities will uh, are, are are at higher risk. So you know yeah. your plan entails taking folks that are not high risk and kind of getting them back to work, correct? Yeah. And still yeah. kind of trying to keep a, a buffer. So one issue is, of course, um, and I know you commented on this. There's an AEI pie chart that that nicely shows that a significant portion, I think forty some percent, of folks that are currently hospitalized in the U.S. are you know under the age of sixty five. Um, what what are your thoughts on 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 that meaning if meaning if the issue is overwhelming the health system right yeah. uh, and you know even if say point some small percentage you know the issue is not so much than the relative risk right the issue is that the absolute percentage even if it's a small percentage uh, but it's more than the it's more more lethal than the flu in terms of it requiring not not only more lethal but more resource intensive than the flu in terms of requiring hospitalizations requiring icu beds right um are, don't you are you worried that that plan um, in, in a in a in a population that just is you know is naive to the uh, to to this novel virus you know could overwhelm the system in regional areas. Well, this is a, a really important point, which is to say, why did we lock down in the first place? We locked down in the first place because the fear was that if we didn't lock down, hospitals uh, would get overwhelmed Italy style, and there would not be enough uh, ICU beds not enough ventilator capacity to actually care for the people who had severe acute respiratory syndrome. That was the original idea. So what, what do we find now? 
what do we find? We, what we find now is that in mo the vast majority of the country, hospital utilization is down. So much so that when United Healthcare or United Health Group reported its quarterly earnings uh, a few days ago, uh, they said that utilization was markedly lower and they actually beat Wall Street's earnings estimates because hospital capacity in general is much higher. That is to say, bed utilization is much lower than uh, what was anticipated because non-essential procedures and a lot of other things uh, are not happening, but also because social distancing means nobody's getting the flu uh, and things like that. So, uh, so right now we appear to have in most places, even in New York City, amazingly enough, we happen we see appear to have enough hospital capacity to start to talk about reopening the economy, and particularly a kind of reopening that and, we're talking about, right, which is that. not a open the floodgates reopening, but a gradual strategic reopening. Yeah, it looks like New York kind of just kind of uh, made it through in terms of, you know, bending but not breaking. I mean, they didn't use much of the excess capacity that was built for them, the comfort, etc. Um, right. But, you know, New York City also has a, I mean, it's a unique, it's such a unique case, right? New York City totally. in terms of having this highly dense, massive need, right? I mean, no epicenter in the world was dealing with the, what the New York, New Jersey metro was dealing with, which is like 11,000 new cases a day. So so you would hope that other systems, but um, I mean, one, one way to think about the U.S. Great if there was a. I was just gonna say one thing. You, you, one way to think about the U.S. Yeah. policy response is you have to kind of think of New York City and the tri-state area as a separate country from the rest of the U.S. Because effectively, what's happened here is what the rest of the country is experiencing and what the tri-state area is experiencing are totally different, uh, and the policy responses should be totally different, in, in, you know, or at least take that into account. No, no, no question. Um, the the um... So hopefully that would work, but I, that's still a concern in terms of, obviously, uh, you know, it's 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 possible that Phoenix or you know some other metro could momentarily get overwhelmed. But I guess the point would be that okay, fine, then build, you know, build them the capacity they need, just like we've done we've done elsewhere, and and kind of keep keep moving as opposed to keeping the entire economy of the country kind of shut down. Um, maybe just think about the U.S. I mean, like most of the yeah. country outside of New York and maybe right. D.C. and Boston. People drive to work. They don't take public trans right. transit. You right. know, when they go to the, the the grocery store, the grocery stores are big. You know, they're not these current the aisles aren't right. cramped. So just there are a lot of things about life in America outside of the East Coast, really, that just isn't as dense from a standpoint right. of your everyday experience. So social distancing is a lot easier. Where I live in Austin, right. you know, social dis distancing is pretty easy because we all live in these houses that are far from each other. And, you know, I mean, relatively speaking, compared to New Yorkers, and we don't live in these cramped apartments. And, and so it's it's yeah. just a, that's and that's true of most of the country. Right. That's a whole so, different feel. So if if. Um... I mean, you're right. the The whole argument for flattening the curve was not to overwhelm the uh, the healthcare systems. If that is really no more, I mean, a, a realistic concern. Um, we, for sure. I mean, let's assume that the numbers will start going up when we loosen up. I mean, at some level, I think it's perhaps unavoidable that we'll see some numbers go up. Why? I mean, where do you see? Um, that plane, I mean, what are the metrics that we're going to be watching, right? If it's not going to be, if it's no longer going to be uh, overwhelming the healthcare system, what is it that we will gauge in the progress that we make to decide, okay, we're fine, we're on a right course, we don't have to panic, and so forth? Is it number of well, lives? What's, what's, what's the... Um... Well, well, first of all, uh, this is why our whole plan emphasizes so much getting the children back in school and the younger elements and, and, and less vulnerable elements of our workforce back online, right? Because 
that entails the lowest risk in terms of increasing the number of hospitalizations and 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 risking an overwhelming of the hospital capacity right again i think as as anish pointed out we 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 barely made it over the over the top there with new york but we appear to be doing better um and and we're certainly doing just fine in the rest of the country so this seems to me a, a, from a risk reward standpoint a pretty positive uh, approach to reopening the economy to your question about what the benchmark should be, I think what's really important is to not merely defer purely to the epidemiologists and the public health officials, who are always instinctively going to be thinking purely about infection rates and hospitalization rates and ICU mm -hmm. utilization. They're not going to be thinking about employment and the cash cushion of small businesses and uh, the federal debt. <laughs> uh, and those things matter, too. Uh, so I, I think what we really need to do here is enter into a phase of the policy conversation where we are thinking very rigorously about the trade-offs between continued economic destruction and uh, the public health response, because both matter. Both are important. And by the way, rising unemployment affects mortality rates, too. Uh, you know, there, there have been people who have commented on the fact that the suppression and the lockdown has meant that Cancer patients aren't getting treatment. People aren't going to their primary care doctors to get their checkups. What does that do for their chronic disease, right? There are lots of health costs for locking down the economy other than dealing with COVID. So I, there are I, lots I of things to right. consider here. I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, the only difference is that we're now all fixated on those numbers, right? We And the epidemiologists will have always that to point to and will always you know, say, look, the numbers are going up or this or that, or be careful or, you know, backtrack. Yeah. Right. But, but interestingly, it's made its way into uh, mainstream mainstream kind of medical thought as well. I mean, you know, cardiologists who that's what, that's what we are. We're not a, we luckily so far have not been asked to go to the front lines. And hopefully we, uh, you know, we, we missed that whole boat. But we, we in general, cardiologists have been idling because, you know, patients yeah. who are, you know, the ERs are all, all everyone talks about how the STEMIs, you know, the um, the, the acute myocardial infarctions have disappeared yeah. and we don't know where they are. And and and, it, and it's also not lost on well, anyone. Well, they're getting that, they're getting coded as COVID if they're testing positive. Right, right. that's an, yeah, that's another that's another point. Uh, but but the interesting thing is, there's certainly the case that you know the number of calls for cardiac arrest at home have gone up massively, say in New York, where people are terrified of of going to the hospital. So it's entirely and and folks are also presenting much later into their disease process, which makes them which will also increase mortality and make it so that they don't have options. So. And, you know, and so, by the way, that's not that's not irrational because there no. is there is also a, a way, a, a, you know, accumulating a pile of evidence that nosocomial transmission is a huge driver. Here. Yep. 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 Yeah. Uh, something like, you know, the China series, something like 40 percent uh, in the initial China series, something like 40 yeah. percent of all uh, acute COVID infections were acquired in the hospital, either healthcare workers or, you know, or, or patients. Right. Um, so so that I think that's really coming to the fore. And you're going to see that in those total mortality numbers, you know, that year to year comparisons, which look at what mortality was, you know, and so that's not just captured within COVID mortality. So, um, uh, you know, the, the issue remains is that, that folks are going to say that, you know, the, the whole reason that we've been able to flatten the curve, the whole reason that we are, uh, that it's not spreading like wildfire, like you're not having the type of exponential spread that's causing um, Lombardi or, or you know, um, uh, Elmworth uh, uh, type scenes uh, is that, we are not doing elective surgeries right now, right? So we are reducing the chances that you're going to have that nosocomial spread. Um, and so, you know, it's, I think it's going to be super, super challenging to try to get folks more comfortable with, with that trade-off that you're outlining that, you know, yes, we're in a place where we are lowering 
the um, the uh, some of the uh, COVID-related mortality as much as possible, but then there's a bunch of other COVID-related mortality, not COVID, not exactly caused by COVID, that is going to be um, is going to be an issue. So some of it is dealing with the psychology of it, and you know you've started to elucidate you know this, and I think some of the medical community are starting to clarify clarify this uh, as well. Um, the other uh, the other interesting part that you talk about is the is reducing the spread of the disease, correct? Um, because mm-hmm. clearly it's hard to have a normal functioning economy when you have, you know, 18 wheelers of bot- with, with bodies that are kind of lining, <laughs> lining whatever streets that you're talking about, uh, you know, next to restaurants and whatnot. Um, how do you, do you think there's an effective way that we can do that? Well, I think there are uh, tools, you know, there are no guarantees in life, but there are tools that we can deploy and we can deploy more aggressively than we, we have up to this point. And, and, and some of that has to do with, with the controversies around, you know, around their use. So uh, uh, listeners to your podcast will probably be familiar with this idea of contact tracing, which is really a very old uh, traditional uh, public health technique where someone gets infected, you interview that individual to find out who else they've talked to or been around in the last couple of weeks or a couple of days, and then reach out and contact those individuals and just kind of do this um, uh, backward-facing uh, uh, analysis to figure out how, how who's got who's got, who's at risk, who needs to be quarantined, et cetera. So that's uh, that's a tool that's been out there for a long time. The the difference now is we have these GPS and Bluetooth-enabled smartphones that can amplify that work. And and uh, and in fact, this is what Facebook does every day. If I if I show up uh, in uh, you know, uh, at a conference and I'm around you guys, if I go, if I go to the ACC conference uh, in the spring uh, and, and you guys are there, then maybe Facebook will say to me, well, you might know Michelle God, you know, blah, 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 right? And just because we're at the same place. So contact tracing of a kind is being done by Facebook and Google and all these people every day. But obviously this is very different because of, of the public health component and the potential involvement of government. But the idea is that uh, your smartphone can help be an indicator of uh, where you've been and how you've traveled and who you've been in touch with. And particularly the East Asian countries like South Korea, Taiwan, and Singapore have deployed this techified version of contact tracing uh, to meaningful effect, or, or so it would appear. So Google and Apple uh, a few days ago or a week ago announced that they are collaborating on a, uh, a software backbone called an Application Programmable Interface, or API, that would allow uh, third-party developers to, to build apps that could help do this in the United States. So that's uh, something that we could do more of. And the, and the virtue of it, we'll talk about the virtue first and the disadvantage. The virtue of it is that in a time when it has proven difficult to scale up testing, uh, contact tracing is a kind of force multiplier that allows us to deploy testing more strategically around people who are most at risk and use contact tracing to fill in the, our, uh, our gap in terms of testing. The flip side of it, of course, is there are plenty of people who are concerned about the privacy implications of contact tracing. Uh, and, and, you know, what I say to some of my libertarian friends is, look, you know, I, I respect those concerns. But at the end of the day, right now, we're in a situation where our economy is locked down. What is a greater threat to your liberty? Uh, your con- the economy being locked down and your, ability, your inability to, to go to work and, and have a living or, or the fact that uh, the government may find out that you are infected with COVID-19? Yeah. That's the trade-off think, we're facing. No, uh, and that's a great that's a great point because certainly not, not much liberty sitting and staring at the uh, four walls in your house. Um, you know, the, the I've been following the 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 contact tracing stuff, uh, and and it's 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 interesting, 
And the places to really follow, you know, were places that were doing it in a fairly robust way. And Singapore seemed to be one of those places that was doing it in a robust way. It's a small country, um, and they have a they have a, you know, in, in relation to the population, they seem to have a fairly robust public health infra infrastructure because they had to deal with SARS. But prior to that, um, and they kind of activated this whole system, and they, you know, you download an app and you come in. Um, but the interesting thing with Singapore is that Singapore never, never did not lock down until very, very late, not till just, I think, a week or a week and a half ago or so. They kept businesses open. They kept schools open. And, and, and the idea was is that by restricting travel in Singapore, um, for Singaporean citizens, if you were coming back into the country, you had, you had to quarantine at home. It, for, for folks that were not Singaporean citizens, they actually had a special place for you to go to quarantine. Um, so... Um, so that's how they controlled travel in. And they, of course, restricted folks from, you know, Wuhan and, and whatnot. They had all sorts of other stuff. And then on top of that, they had the, the contact tracing kind of layered on top of that, which is similar to what I think you're, you're talking about doing. Interestingly, about two weeks ago when, or now, I think now three weeks ago or so, when the rest of the world shut down, there were about 200,000 Singaporeans that returned. These were Singaporean, you know, citizens that returned to Singapore. And, you know, it, it's relatively clear that about two, three weeks after that happened, um, despite the contact tracing, despite, you know, the kind of tech they have. And I think they had Bluetooth, um, you know, the Bluetooth stuff that allows you to kind of anonymously figure out who, who you may have come into contact with. You know, it's, it's not working. At this point, they have community spread. It's, you know, and once you have community spread, you can forget about trying to do contact tracing. So it's an interesting lesson uh, that leads me into the other thing I loved about your plan, which was you're the only one that's talking about, about regional travel uh, uh, travel restrictions of some kind. Um, because I think it, it seems relatively clear from the experiences that everyone's going through that, that without having some type of restriction of travel from places that are hot to places that are, you know, uh, safe, um, you're not going to be able to successfully really, uh, you know, do, do much of anything. Um, and and it, to be clear, what you're describing is domestic intra yes, uh, US. Right. Uh, regional travel or interregional right. travel, which you, is which is important. Yeah, yeah. And you talked about, and actually, I didn't know that that Governor Abbott had actually put in a forced uh, fourteen day quarantine for folks coming in from Louisiana. You know, Louisiana mm -hmm. when it was hot in New Orleans and stuff. What what's the what is the why is it that you are the only folks to mention? I don't find it mentioned domestic stuff. I don't find it mentioned at any of the thousands of hours of press conferences that uh, have been given. Now I don't find it mentioned by other other think tanks. Um, why why is this travel thing such a, a taboo? You know, I don't have a good answer for you as to why nobody else uh, has brought it up. I mean, to us, it seemed like a, an obvious thing. And maybe it's because our, our, we're headquartered, uh, my think tank is headquartered in Austin, that we also have headquarters in Washington, D.C. And so we're, we're more aware of what uh, states like Texas were doing. Um, so that could be part of it. But uh, I think also you know, the, the, the important thing here is the constitutional sensitivity, which, which is important to raise, which is that it traditionally regulation of interstate commerce is done at the congressional level. And so uh, it's something that I think just people just figured, well, there's nothing you can really do about it. Mm -hmm. But actually, you know, we should consider it because of, of the public health emergency that there should be a sunsetted temporary uh, safe harbor for states to institute the kinds of steps that uh, the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, instituted in response to the New Orleans breakout. Because New Orleans, New Orleans is very close to Houston. So it's yeah. very easy for people who want to 
Yeah, this has happened during Katrina. People who want to get out of New Orleans can, can head over to Houston. In fact, uh, I want to say like hundreds of thousands did uh, when that happened with Christina uh, with Katrina. So, so here's a situation where you know there's obviously a public health concern. They could do that. In fact, they also restricted air travel from hotspots like New York City. If you're flying, if you were flying into Texas from New York City, you also had to quarantine for for 14 days. So, so they did it, and and no one seemed to bother them about it at the time. I think just because it all happened so quickly. But in theory. Yeah, um, that's illegal. Uh, I think it is anyway. And I'm not I'm not a lawyer, but that, my understanding is that that's illegal. So yeah, I, the goal of, of the recommendation that we put out is give uh, localities and states the safe harbor to enact those restrictions when needed. It sure seems like to be clear on the on the on the the merit of that that approach. Because an issue we were just saying a moment ago that once it's in the community, then forget it. I mean, isn't the sense that it's in the community everywhere, and in which case people might say, "Oh, but it's not." This is... But but and that that's what the New York folks kept saying. You know, I've, I've been saying, I don't know, not just me, but a bunch of people have been saying for three weeks that it's ridiculous that you can get you can in the midst of eleven thousand new cases a day in the New York New Jersey metro area, you can get on a flight to Newark, go to Seattle, go to anywhere in the country you want, <laughs> and then yeah, you know go to go to some did. place. Yeah, a lot of and so did. a lot of my New York friends they they headed to Miami, they headed to wherever to get to get out of New York City, and of course maybe took it with them. So right. So yeah, yeah. it's 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 a challenge and and I, I think it was just look I, I think there's been a lot of criticism of policymakers for not moving too quickly but there's an understandable reluctance on the matter of uh, in the you know when it comes to policymakers to inst institute these kind of restrictions think about when you know uh, Trump, Trump likes to talk about this he, you know when he instituted the travel ban from China Every everyone with a graduate degree was lecturing him on how xenophobic it was to institute a travel yeah. ban from China. It turned out to be a reasonably intelligent decision. Uh, you know, uh, maybe you know, depending on your point of view, you might think it's one of the the few. But uh, uh, but but he did it, and he also restricted travel from Europe uh, relatively early on. When again, people thought you know there, the expert opinion was travel bans don't actually restrict uh, the flow of transmission. So. You know, uh, it was just one of those things that was relatively controversial. So all that to say that you know, travel restrictions have been a thing that I guess for whatever reason people have been reluctant to do. Maybe because they themselves travel so much, they did that maybe they felt the pain of travel restrictions more than others, and therefore uh, yeah. didn't want to do it. It, make, it makes zero sense. I think, and I think again, I mean, I encourage everyone to go to the plan. It's it's a it's a very well laid out, very easy to read plan. It's on freeop.org. We're not funded by freeop or anything. I just found it to be excellently well done. Um, it's also it's also uh, uh, written not just, you know, uh, you're, of course, um, generally regarded as a, cons a conservative uh, uh, think tank, but, you know, signing on to this plan is also Bob, Bob Wachter from uh, UCSF, certainly by no means uh, considered a conservative. So kind of a, a great, uh, I think, bipartisan uh, effort, just a lot of practical, pragmatic, uh, pragmatic stuff stuff in here that and, and really bob good. kocher who is uh was a, a member of obama's uh, president obama's senior economic oh, I know staff that. Okay. Uh, and, and uh, lan he chen of course as know, well right yeah so so we have some great co-authors by the way i would say free up free up is not a you know we don't consider ourselves a conservative organization we are a progressive okay. organization that happens to think that free markets can help achieve progressive policy outcomes so we try to bring people together and i, I like to think that we did so here as well so i appreciate that, we, that we've got some great contributors from from different points of view yeah, no, it's really well done. Um, what, um, so, so, you know, and I, I just, I don't want to, uh, in, there are, I just wanted to mention also before I forget, you know, the nice thing about uh, the other nice point we'll highlight before moving on is that, you know, requiring a negative COVID-19 test for passenger air and Amtrak travel. Interestingly, when China has just opened up and everyone is watching them closely because, you know, where's their second wave and are their hospitals going to start filling up? 
Um, and, you know, the nice little blurb I saw from somebody who was going from Wuhan to Beijing is, you know, first of all, it's a lottery that only allows so many people to travel from Wuhan out to, to wherever. And on top of that, you have to have not, not just your passport, but proof that you're COVID negative before kind of traveling. But again, you know, a smart, practical way of kind of getting the travel industry also, you know, getting people to feel safe about traveling, right? Because even if tomorrow Trump said, okay, everyone can do whatever it is they want, bars are open, you know, these folks are going to need a lot of help uh, in order to feel good or feel okay and feel safe about about doing this stuff, uh, about going out again. So, um, I mean, we're we're actually looking at that because, you know, the thing is, it's it's important to get people to travel again uh, in terms of in terms of air travel. It's such an important part of our economy. Uh, but prior, if you look at t- 2019, in 2019, the average uh, passenger, you know, passengers per day on domestic air travel was like 2.4 million. So, uh, you know, if we if we don't, you know, some of those are round trips and some of those are the same people, of course, but we're not at the scale of testing that we can get, we, we need to be to, to do to get all those people back. But could we get, you know, uh, enough of them back, particularly the frequent flyers where you can get tested and you can maybe keep the middle seats uh, empty and things like that. Yep. There, are, there are lots of things we can do. And we're, and we're looking at those recommendations and actively trying to refine them because we do think that restoring air travel is really important. Yeah, that's really great. Um, what, uh, what, what are your thoughts on what the White House has done in terms of, uh, you know, laying out a couple of days ago, they, they, they set out a, uh, a, a, a kind of a plan to reopen. Um, what are your thoughts on what they've done? Well, I think that uh, I'll, I'll highlight one positive and one negative relative to the free out plan. The one positive, I think the one area where I feel like I, ho- I like to think our work influenced their thinking was their plan did not have explicit benchmarks in terms of testing or developments, uh, developing treatments or developing a vaccine. It, it looked purely at infection, particularly hospitalization rates, which is just what we were talking about, right? That the lockdown has been driven by hospital capacity. If the hospital capacity is okay and your curves are starting to flatten, that's a good reason to to, to start to reopen the economy. So I feel like that was uh, meaningful progress relative to the public policy paradigm we were dealing with prior to the release of our paper. The one area where uh, where I think their recommendations really diverged from ours was on reopening the schools. They described reopening the schools as, in, in their parlance, a stage two event. So once you've not only flattened the curve, but flattened it a second time or for a prolonged period, then you can reopen the schools. Whereas our view is we can reopen the schools today because children have a, a close to zero risk of being hospitalized for COVID-19. The issue, the issue, of course, is that I mean, the whole reason I think they went after kids was, was kids are, are a vector. Uh, yeah, one of, of the one, one least, of the, with, we, we assume they're a vector. There's some, yes. you know, there's some evidence that kids are not as much of a vector as adults. Yeah, no, that was, I saw that, uh, I think a couple of days ago, it came out showing that, you know, they just, they don't appear to have any antibodies at all, suggesting that, you know, they may not be getting the disease, which by itself is very interesting. Um, but one of the, one of the issues we've been having, certainly on the medical side, it, it, and this relates to what we're talking about, is that it's been very hard to keep nursing homes. Um, yeah kind of free of disease, right? And, and you know, when you think about trying to seclude a vulnerable population, it would seem like a reasonable thing to do would be to kind of take a vulnerable population and put them somewhere, right? Nursing homes are kind of that, um, uh, are, are kind of that uh, simulation, if you will. And, and that simulation has gone very, very, very badly. <laughs> yeah. You know, 
Um, what What's are, even worse in Europe, where roughly half the deaths uh, from COVID-19 are happening in nursing homes. So it's even worse there yeah. than it is here. Wow. Uh, so, you know, again, without having some type of, even if you had some type of central quarantine route of taking all the vulnerable and sick and putting them into, say, hotels, right? Well, we've done that with nursing homes, kind of, and that's a miserable failure. Um, and again, it ties into this whole school issue, right? I mean, as, assuming this, if it bears out that kids are not vectors, wonderful. Right now, I think it's still, everyone still leans on the fact that they could yeah. be vectors for this. Yeah. Um, and we don't bring how, that up in the paper because the evidence right. is too preliminary. Right. How how the heck do, how the heck does one exactly protect the vulnerable, the elderly in their homes if you have the rest of the community kind of out and about, kind of mixing together? Um, so doesn't it make sense then yeah. to kind of delay you know school closing till you have you know a level of cases in the community that's much much lower? You mean delay school reopening? Right. Right. Yeah. I I, I would say a couple of things. One. You know, localities can experiment with different versions of this. For example, you could have a locality that's very strict with entry, re-entry criteria for schools and forces you to like, or, you know, they know what, you know, your birth date because of their own, you know, uh, stuff. So they, they can, they could, they could be very aggressive about it at the, at the local school level or even at the state level. Other states or localities may say, you know what, if you're 67 or you're 70 and you live with your school age child or grandchild, then, and you're, and you're willing to take that risk on, we're going to let you we're going to let you be responsible for that and sign a waiver saying you know so long as you understand that these are the risks you can you can let your kid back in school so there may be you know various strategies like that that at the local level the state level we enable uh, families to 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 deploy and one thing we actually want to do because we've gotten a lot of interest in this um, this as this reopening the schools a part of our plan is to really flesh it out uh, flesh out exactly what are some of the uh, policy options that states and localities would have to partially reopen schools in this way. And by the way, what do we need to do for the kids who still have to stay home? So if you do live with your grandparents or other at-risk individuals, right. what can we do to make sure virtual learning opportunities are there for you so you're not being left behind as your classmates go to school? But the way I look at it and the way my co-authors look at it, and we've talked about this, is partial reopening is better than complete closure because it's incredibly important for the reasons we've talked about already to reopen schools, both for the kids and for the parents of those kids who need to work. And even if some people in, are temporarily uh, kept, kept at home during that period, it's still such an important benefit for those who really can go to school that we need to be able to offer to them as soon as possible. The, um, what, what are your thoughts on, um on the the idea like you don't focus much on testing it, other than, other than to say that we're not going to have the testing that we ideally would want right. um well, we do have a long section about that right about right. the, the right. challenges the technical challenges of testing right oh right and I, I didn't mention the other beautiful thing that you talked about which again is one of the first folks to mention it is is this idea about uh the, the sero prevalence testing being some type of magic a magic thing, and 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 by the way, Dr. Burks, who I mean, I, I think she's just been really, really good in terms of um, she gives you a sense that that you know she speaks from a well of experience actually doing it as opposed to just kind of theoretically thinking about about what what things could be, and she's been bringing up for some time this idea that you know unless you un, unless you have a test that's well validated, you know what exactly does it does it mean, and you bring up the same thing, and you nicely speak to it very well. Um, that 
you know, you need, if you want to test widely uh, in a, in a, and, and so that's assuming a relatively low prevalence population, you have to have a specificity of a test that's very, very high to, very to, high. to, to, to work. I yeah. mean, above 99.5%. And I can tell you, I can, you know, the audience knows this, but we have very, very few tests that are 99.5% uh, specific. So Completely these tests, agree. these tests are not going to be some type of magic thing that allows, you know, things to happen. And you can see, and you can see that based on the, 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 uh, the seroprevalence data from Santa Clara that came out, the moment it came out. And that of course suggested this much higher degree of folks that are asymptomatic that may have had it, you know, almost immediately, there was an avalanche of folks that were pointing out the errors in it. And a lot of the errors have to relate to what the, what the, specificity, of the, test, the specificity of the test uh, may be. But all that being said, what, wh how, how exactly do you see testing playing a role? You do talk about it. Um, you know, what type of testing? I know you talk about some work testing. Uh, you know, what, what role does it really have? Is it in finding just the acute people, in finding folks that are acutely ill when they get to the office? Or, or should we be doing some type of seroprevalence test, even though we don't have a test that we know is is, is well validated and that good? And, and I mean, this this I think this might even be the most interesting question you've asked because it's it's really the way tests are being perceived by the public and by policymakers and the reality of how tests can and should be utilized. I think there's a huge gap there. Right. And and you've described some of it. I mean, I, I think. That uh, um, you know the serology, the antibody tests are going to be much more useful from a public health standpoint in terms of really understanding what is the true infection fatality ratio from SARS-CoV-2 as opposed to the case fatality ratio. So just for those listeners who don't know the difference in the terminology, case fatality case fatality ratio means okay, how many people have died who presented with symptoms and been diagnosed as having COVID-19? Infection fatality ratio means it takes also into account the asymptomatic patients who are not presenting to a clinician with any COVID-19 type symptoms. That infection fatality ratio is much more important from a public uh, health standpoint. And if it's true that uh, you know Santa Clara and LA County just put out some some data of its own, uh, if if we're seeing you know 50 to 60 fold uh, increases in infection rate versus case rate, that uh, that's very uh, positive in terms of the, the fatality rate from being infected. And that may give us more confidence in terms of the ability to reopen the economy. So I think <laughs> that's actually the bigger utility to, uh, to the serology testing than maybe just taking a test and feeling, okay, it's all, it's all solved. I don't have COVID because I've got a negative test. When in fact, you can be infected and the, the serology is positive two weeks later as opposed to right then and there. So for a lot of reasons, the, the antibody tests are not going to be uh, uh, our salvation. Also, I, I can't remember if we've talked about it, but just because you're positive for antibodies doesn't mean you're going to be immune in the future. Yeah. And that's really important, too. So there are a lot of people who are, uh, who are operating under the assumption and in their conversations and discussions of saying, oh, well, once you're, once you're seropositive, once you've got the antibodies, you're fine. You can go back out and into the world. And you're, you're not at, at high risk. And we have we do not know that that is uh, that is an assumption that is uh, that is a, something that's being uh, said without evidence at this point. Um, and then the other piece of it is the RT PCR. I mean, ideally, if we can get RT PCR up and running and, and at scale, that would be wonderful. That's that's also very challenging for different reasons. That, uh, but that also has some disadvantage in the sense that a PCR test, uh, despite, you know, even if you could scale it up, it's somewhat cumbersome and right now needs to be administered by a healthcare provider. 
But if you could scale up RT-PCR, what that does is that tells you what the viral load in your, in your system is right now as a patient. But if you've been infected in the past and your immune system has cleared the infection, whether specifically through antibodies or non-specifically, um, the PCR test won't tell you if you've actually been infected before. So both the antibody test and the PCR test have a role but neither of them really give us all the answers that we need. And so when people say, oh, look, we're just scale testing and everything's gonna be fine, it's an incredibly oversimplification of what, what's really going on here. Yeah, and I'm really surprised by who's really pushing the pushing testing. These yeah, are folks pe- that people are- with, People with graduate degrees who, you, who, who should know better, right? I mean, that's what's really uh, yeah, surprising. Yeah, right. The, um, what, what are your, so what I, what I, what I foresee happening, right, uh, is that, you know, the curve flattens somewhat, you, you somewhat get cases coming down, hospitals are empty, you start opening up, and then something like Singapore happens, right? Where, you know, in a, in a, in a densely packed community, perhaps somewhere, perhaps a nursing home like what, what happened in Washington, um, you're going to get this outbreak, right? And that's going to happen. There's no question that's going to happen between now and uh, uh, 2021 or whenever uh, vaccine or herd immunity arrives, whichever first. What, how, what should we do with that? How should we handle that? Well, what we talked about earlier, which is to say that it really comes down to the issue of hospital capacity. If if infection rates go up and and even hospitalizations go up, but they're manageable from a hospital capacity standpoint, then we should reopen the economy. Because again, the costs of the economic lockdown are incredible and terrible. And I mean, today, the day we're recording this podcast, the price of West Texas intermediate crude oil has gone below zero, which means to say people are paying uh, their buyers to take the oil off their hands because co- the cost of storing that oil is greater uh, than, uh, than their ability to sell it. That's how bad things are. And that's just one aspect of our economy. There's more to come. I mean, the economic cost of a prolonged shutdown, one thing we have in our paper that, that we haven't talked about on this podcast, the median small business has an average of 27 days of cash in reserve. And yes, some of those businesses have been helped by the big $2 trillion stimulus package that Congress passed, but a lot of them have not. And a lot of those businesses are running out of money. And when they do, they'll never come back. And we will be faced with an economy in which the small business part of the ecosystem is totally decimated. And we're left with a bunch of gigantic corporations running everything. That's not really good, whatever your ideology is. So there are a lot of serious consequences to uh, keeping the economy closed. And that has to be, as we've said, part of the, part of the conversation, not merely the infection rates. Certainly that, that trade-off is going to need to be clarified in a, in a better way. Um, what do you, um, do you, do you talk to Dr. Uh, Dr. Gottlieb, who's been, a, who's been, you know, very out front on, uh, on a number of these things. And he was very, very early in terms of saying, Hey, look, something, something's going wrong here. So he's kind of become the de facto, uh, if you will, um, uh, for a lot of people, a de facto uh, COVID czar. Do you talk to him and uh, kind of uh, kind of talk about various ideas that both of you have? And and if you do, and if you've read, I'm sure you've read the AEI um, plan as well. I know the White House uh, is certainly reading it uh, as well. Um, what are what are your thoughts on some kind of positives and 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 you know in places maybe you would do things a little different? Yeah, well, Scott and I are old friends. I'll, I'll keep our conversations to ourselves, but uh, but I will say that you know it's been great that he's been out there, being able to you know to articulate a lot of stuff and give people a certain amount of comfort that that uh, that, that good advice is getting to the White House. Uh, I do we do refer to the AEI plan in in the free out plan, and, and because the AEI plan, which has many virtues, 
when it came out did reflect this public policy consensus of, well, you know, you got to have the testing and you got to have the treatments and you got to have the vaccine before you can completely unlock the economy. And I think on the, on that front, uh, we, you know, that's where our plan sort of departs from from uh, the approach that Scott and, and his colleagues, who are all very esteemed and, and important people whose voices should be listened to, Mark McClellan, for example, who also has a lot of experience uh, in, in terms of being a policymaker, uh, and some uh, some academics who, who do important research in this area as well. So great people involved in that AI plan. Uh, uh, and I'd say, I think we just we have a, a disagreement with them in terms of the opportunity to to reopen parts of the economy. And part of that may come from the fact that Scott, uh, Scott, one of his day jobs, he has many, but one of his day jobs is as a hospitalist in, in New York City. And so he, I think, comes at this problem as somebody who uh, is very sensitive to the issue of hospital capacity. Another uh, uh, thing worth mentioning is that a lot of the people who are veterans of the George W. Bush administration, as both McClellan and Scott Gottlieb are, uh, George W. Bush actually was was paranoid about the potential of a pandemic to, to wreak havoc in the United States and actually put together a task force with which a lot of HHS staffers were involved in in planning for in terms of what a future pandemic could look like. And the reason I bring that up is that's good in a sense that the Bush administration really cared about this, but the weakness intellectually is so much of that preparation used influenza and in the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic as a paradigm for what we should do now. And one thing we close with in our paper is the concept that yes, coronavirus is not the flu. And that's not just a, a rebuke against those who compared it to the flu in the sense of not wanting to be concerned, but it matters from a public health paradigm standpoint as well, because so much of the policy response has been driven by the idea that, well, here's what we did in 1918, let's do that now when particularly this skew in the morbidity and mortality towards the elderly in, in the context of COVID-19 is an incredibly important differentiator in terms of how we should think about the policy response now. And I worry that too many people who are really smart and have a lot of expertise in public health are leaning too hard on their pandemic, flu pandemic experience and not thinking specifically about the situation we find ourselves today. That's interesting. I. When Michelle asked about, you know, who who uh, are you uh, influencing or who is this written for? I, I couldn't help but think because it's it helped to think that in kind of watching, you know, what what uh, Scott's um, or Dr. Gottlieb's um, um, kind of uh, pronouncements in his interviews have been, you can you can almost see the moderation kind of happening in real time over the last week to ten days, and that, you know, today, yesterday, he, he's starting to talk about. Oh, uh, saying like we're not, we, we're probably not going to have the testing available that that you know I would want. We're just going to have to, we're going to have to come up with a plan to open, which sounds a heck of a lot like what you're saying. So I think it points to the fact we'll we'll, we'll let you go here in a minute, but it points to the fact of how important it is to have a myriad of uh, you know uh, uh, voices across the spectrum in terms of where folks are coming from. And one of the problems I've found with with public health, um, not just when it comes to pandemics, when it comes to Medicaid, when it comes to, you know, uh, policy that relates to uh, health insurance or whatnot, is that, you know, everyone comes from an ideological, uh, uh, the same cloth, the same ideological cloth, if you will. And that that's not a healthy environment because, you know, it, it makes it makes folks a lot sharper when you can kind of have different folks coming from different perspectives. So I think I think you and Free Opera are just uh, very important, and, and this 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 most recent uh, pandemic opening plan that you've uh, kind of put out is an important uh, uh, part of that kind of tapestry that we that we have. So, Michelle, anything else? Uh, no, just I mean, 
one one maybe final a little philosophical thought is um, um, which I think your, your plan is more sympathetic to meaning assuming the worst case scenario more pessimistic scenario the country the world has to adapt to living in a covid reality meaning it's possible despite the best efforts of science and you know clearly over time there'll be progress and whatnot but but we will need to to accept you know and and to adapt and to change the way we live and so forth uh, according to that reality um policy is a very blunt instrument and it's probably the you know not a very healthy uh, instrument to allow people to change their expectations about what it means to live in society to have young people you know mingle with old people or not and, and that sort of thing and um and i and i th i i think what what i like about the message you know precisely is is that you say listen we have to consider sort of a new baseline and uh and a new reality and and let people by opening society i mean there's a huge cost in not allowing people to sort of adapt to biology yeah you know one thing one thing i mentioned one, one question I, i've gotten a fair amount uh, recently is well do you think we'll ever get back to a, an open economy again or, or are we living in a permanently unfree economy after this episode and and i'm optimistic that we can that we can get back to something resembling normal and what i mean by resembling normal is think about those pacific rim countries after the sars pandemic of 2003 if you look at singapore you look at taiwan look at hong kong these are these are countries that you know there are a number of there's heritage and the fraser institute both put out these rankings of countries by economic freedom and those countries are are at the top of the list even above the united states in, in many instances even after sars in other words they managed to restore some sort of normalcy now anytime there's a threat of a pandemic they they've got their masks out or if you even if you got sick in any way if you go if you go to public transit transit in singapore lots of people are running out with masks in normal times right in the winter time especially so uh, there's an adjustment that goes on in terms of just hygiene and, and, and how you as an individual think about your responsibility to public health. But somehow they managed to recover from SARS and, and, and have something resembling a normal life again without a permanent damage to, to the vibrancy of their economy. So my hope is that with the right uh, resolve in the United States, we can do the same thing here. Excellent. Excellent. Sir, thank you so much for spending an hour with us. That was really, really enlightening. Again, I urge folks to go to uh, freeop.org, F-R-E-O-P-P.org, and uh, take a look at the take a look at the plan. Really, really some thoughtful stuff. So, really great. Hey, thanks again. Thanks, thanks again. Thanks for all the praise. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Akkad and Coca Report. Subscribe for free on iTunes or Stitcher at akkadandcoca.com, where you'll find detailed show notes, our blog, and more. Akkad and Coca.com.